welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. On this episode of Why Make, we have Brian Fireman, Western North Carolina furniture maker and architect, talking about what it's like to be a maker on both of those platforms. I've known Brian for about 12 years. We shared studio space, actually building space in the same building on the South Slope in Asheville. We're going to get into a great conversation today with Brian Fireman. Okay, so here we are in Why Make, virtual Why Make. with Why why Make Land. Why Make Land. And I think, Brian, you started into a long-winded exposition of how you almost burned down your shop on Shortcock Avenue. Well, short, short cocks. cocks. <laughs> That's C-O-X, though, yeah. not C-O-C-K-X. It is. It is. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you almost burned down your shop on Short Cocks Avenue, but how did you get I did. Cox I Avenue? almost, uh, before, and so this could have been the same shop I first met Rob in, although we can't quite remember. The mystery. Before the mystery. you were in that space below me in that building, Rob, there was a guy it was a stained glass artist, so I won't oh, drop names. I rem- no, but I remember him. I remember him sleeping there and stuff. Yeah, okay. So okay. he lived yeah, there. So we, we won't go there. We yeah, won't yeah. go there. He, he lived there. It's a big fallout between him and uh, Tim Barnwell, the photographer. He was also the landlord, still is, in the same space. But Steve – oh, shit, I said his name. <laughs> the stained glass artist lived there, which turned out to be a blessing for me because I had – Two years previously, bought my first house in Asheville, gutted the basement, turned it into a shop and did really for the first time in my life, you know, I, I put in a new bathroom. So I had a little experience with some framing, with some drywall, with some, you know, rerunning some some wiring. And I thought, you know, I've done this. I, I've moved a couple things around in the panel at, at home. I can do this in the shop. I needed to put in some 220 volt outlets. Jack of all trades, including an electrician. Including. So when I moved into that shop, it was a four, if you remember, there's four studios in that building, but the power for the building all came into my shop and then it was distributed through everybody else. Okay. So I had kind of grand control and I did know that, but I thought that I could just rearrange some breakers and add some new outlets. But what I didn't know was a three phase panel. And so when I started and it was a, Special kind, I I still don't really understand, but it was like every third leg of the panel was three phase and the other ones were two. So what Mm -hmm. I did was I started moving around some existing breakers to kind of organize it a little bit. So all of my stuff would be, you know, in one little section of the panel and not all over. And um, I ended up frying. Uh, The reason we knew I almost burned the place down is the refrigerator started smoking. I think a stereo caught on fire. Um, He was down there, came running up. Because, uh, you know, that's where the electricity knew something was going on. And I was oh, wow. redoing some wiring. <laughs> so lucky for me, I didn't burn the place down. The fire marshal didn't have to Woo. be called. Tim Barnwell um, took care of hiring a professional electrician to come in there and wire the shop for me. And uh, oh, wow. ended up being a much better deal. Lesson learned. <laughs> you feel, if it makes you feel any better, Brian, I did almost the exact identical thing in my co-op shop. Oh, God. I was I was trying to wire up I think my three phase bandsaw. This was and in Chap- Chapel Hill, Eric. 
and yeah, that this is crazy that shop out 54. Yeah. yeah. It was like, and I don't think I ever really conceptually understood three phase power. I just knew that there were three wires and somehow I had to hook them up. Right. And so I just, I just jumped into the, into the breaker panel and just started messing around with that. Yeah, this one looks and, good. <laughs> and you know, it, it started smoking smoke started billowing out of the panel and my my shopmate jim who was actually a, a pretty competent electrician basically just jumped in and said what the fuck uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and permanent, permanently removed wow. any and all permission i ever had to get into the breaker yeah sometimes we have to learn the hard way um but, yeah luckily it wasn't too hard for either of us we didn't burn anything down wow Right. I'm hanging out with some lucky guys. <laughs> right. I've, n- I've never done that, anything that crazy with electricity, but I've I've gotten zapped before. Well, uh, yeah. Not not yeah. lay you on the floor zapped, but enough to make me back up and be like, oh, I got to rethink this. Yeah. Right. I don't want to yeah. have that experience. Right. <laughs> not fun. Well, and that seems like the perfect entree into the into the why make question. Yeah. Which which is. When do you first remember making something, and uh, when right. do you first remember wanting to be a maker? That's the that's the, that's that's the starting point, the kernel of why. Maker. Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've listened to the podcast before, so I've had a little time to think about this. I assumed you would be asking the <laughs> earliest. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> uh, doing some prep work uh-huh. there. Uh-oh. I'm prepared with this one. I'm not at least for the first question. I'm not on the spot. I um, The earliest thing I can really remember doing is the house I grew up in. I grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And we had uh, a big wood front porch with some steps. And on the kind of on the side of the steps, you know, a little bear on either side was a little wall and it topped with this piece of granite cap. And I eat popsicles and I would go out there and I would just sharpen my popsicle sticks by rubbing them on the, the granite block. <laughs> and that, and I would do that. I, I think I bought, I must've bought just, or somehow been given a pack of popsicle sticks and I would just sit there for hours and sharpen these sticks and just make little points with them. I don't remember what I did with them, but I remember sitting there and just rubbing the wood, just rubbing the wood back and forth on the granite. And I think, um, the first thing I really built was we had making, you're making shivs. Um, exactly, <laughs> That's a, weird, a weird way to start a woodworking career, right? <laughs> or or your early career as an outlaw. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna <laughs> chish kebab skewers. There um, you go. <laughs> we I remember having a little Swiss Army knife and going walking about a mile away and finding a patch of bamboo and I would cut the bamboo with a little saw on my Swiss Army knife and I'd come home and I'd make high jumps in my front yard. Oh, that's cool. So that you would just jump over. Yeah, I would jump over. So the, the, the bamboo was the high jump pole. And then I would build out of some lumber. My, my dad probably had, um, the sides for it. So that was one, I think that's the first thing I can actually remember building. And I, I know I, I had a bird growing up, a parrot named it Amigo. And Amigo. I built some stands for Amigo in my room and downstairs the bird didn't live in a cage. It just walked around the house and flew around my room and had all these stands in my room. Although I got to admit, I did the same. I did the same um, high jump thing. Oh, cool! The, 
It was, you know, you put an old mattress down and you created a bar and you did what? What was it? The Fosbury Flop? Yeah, right. Something? Yeah. Well, you did, you ran track, right, Eric? I mean, you did like, yeah. or, long, or long distance. I was, yes. The long, I mean, I was, was a long distance runner. I mean, I was making, I, mean, I was making jumps too. I was doing oh, skateboard cool. ramps. Yeah, I built yeah. skateboard ramps when I was like 10, 11, 12 years old. Right on. See? Not that, too original. That was fun. We're all, made, we're all making jumps. <laughs> we're trying to get somewhere. <laughs> I'll I'll add one quick little side to that, but I had no real inkling. I mean, that's kind of, if I look back, should have been my first inkling that I had some interest in working with my hands. Um, when I was in high school, I wanted to take an off-campus auto mechanics class. I remember, I think I was a junior, talking to my guidance counselor about that, who talked me out of it. And I still regret to this day listening to that advice because my guidance counselor said, don't do it. If you want to go to college, you don't want to take any auto mechanics. And it wasn't that I had any career motivation there. I just, I think I, I think I just wanted to learn how to make something or tinker with something or fix something. And, and this was at high school in Winston Salem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, the same thing happened to me. I had an option to go to Vo- Votech yeah. in Morgantown, West Virginia, and they said, "Well, don't you want to go to college instead? Right. Instead of being a tradesman?" Yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess that would make sense. And man, in hindsight. I'm so pissed. I'm still mad at that yeah. guidance counselor. It could have I, set my yeah, life on a completely you. different trajectory. I mean, it took it it took another. You know, I don't even know. It took a while. Then when was that? It must have been another 15 years before I really kind of began to learn that I this was a real interest in mine. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole notion of negating an education of the hands as as being a part of being a well-rounded person cuz actually I think in high school for me one of the the most important moments was taking mechanical drawing mm-hmm. which was considered votech too but uh and I still remember Mr. Z Mr. Zaharowitz was like <laughs> was like you know this is this is a part of a well-rounded education this is you know thinking mechanically learning how to visualize in three dimensions and two I mean, it was an important part of me being a maker was taking mechanical yeah. drawing. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a path to vocational education. It was a path to learning how to think. Yeah. It was, um, I, I yeah. agree with you. I also took a drafting class in high school and looking back on that class was a major motivation for me to decide to go back to architecture school because I was trying to, at that point, remember some things I was interested in. And when I thought of high school, I remembered that drafting class and it wasn't an architectural drafting class. It was just a general drafting, mechanical drafting, yeah. but I loved it. It was my favorite class in high school. Like I don't remember anything else, but I remember that. <laughs> yeah. I had a graphic design class in high school. That was very, very inspirational. And the teacher for it still stays in touch with me. Oh, that's it's awesome. All- the stuff that I make. That's I mean, awesome. That kind of stuff definitely, definitely informs us yeah. and, you know, leads us into the direction that we don't think we're going to take, but we eventually do. Yeah. I wish I, you know, in hindsight, I wish could have paid a little more attention to those kind of and, things at the time. Man, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, 2020, if I been, yeah, I would have been doing it following that path at 18 instead of waiting until I was 28. Right. Oh, it would have made Who a big knows? difference. I think. But yeah, I mean, what hindsight's 2020, right? So so cool. You're 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 in high school and mm-hmm. and being pushed away from Votech and and uh, <laughs> so I, I, had a, I had a question for you about this. So you know in you know building your parrot stands and all that stuff. Yeah. Were was there 
anybody doing artistic stuff like your mom or your oh, dad yeah. or brothers and sisters that that kind of was you know being supportive of it or um lighting it up in your head absolutely i don't know if that was i was conscious of that at the mm-hmm. time but it, my my parents were both artistic my my father was an emergency room doctor um and my mother when I was a kid, well, she went back to school when I was in high school and became a, a therapist and started a practice. But before that, she was a crap. She started weaving. I remember going to Penland School of Crafts when I was maybe like four or five, and she had some friends there, and we stayed there. I remember running around in that field as a little kid. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, And I, I even remember sleeping in this house that was so cool because it had like a little loft. It might have been a cob house that, you know, the walls were really sculpted. It wasn't just a stick frame house. And as a kid, I still have a memory of this funky house that I stayed in at Penland. Um, so I think my mom might have first, she took a ceramics class there. She took a weaving and she started becoming a weaver. And I would go to local craft shows with her at the time in Winston-Salem was Piedmont Craftsman. Yep. And I go to the craft fair. I remember in one craft show, it's a funny story. Another, okay. I'm, a pr- I'm a proud member of Piedmont Craftsman. Piedmont Craftsman. So my yeah. mom, this is cool. Man. She had a booth and I was playing under one of the stages and I stood up under the stage. I was probably 10 and um, split my head open. Oh, and I didn't have like long hair, but my hair was kind of long for a kid and I had just gushing blood just streaming down my head and my face and through my hair and it was getting crusty and I run back and so my dad said this happened many times as a kid. Anytime I got hurt, my dad was working and my mom would be, you know, first on the scene. So I ran back to my mom's booth and like, Mom, and I'm just covered in blood. And I remember her just freaking out. <laughs> I remember sitting there in the middle of her booth as she had to go get the car. Oh, I'm wow. sitting there all by myself and blood's going down my face and Take me to the hospital. Hey, Dad. <laughs> Stitch me up again. How's work going? <laughs> yeah, so I have great memories of watching my mom weave in this room, you know, and on her loom. And not only my mom, but my dad also started doing some ceramics. I remember he they, – we, they still have some pots that they both threw. They had a kiln in a little garage. Um, my dad did some macrame. He made tons of <laughs> – hanging fern pots all over our front porch (laughs) my dad built stuff for my bedroom and my brother's bedroom growing up so it was just kind of in the vibe my mom started working with piedmont um no i can't remember what it was called maybe it was piedmont craftsman she was working with them so i was always somehow connected a little bit to the the craft community as a kid So there was always something people doing artistic stuff with their hands yeah. around you. That's, that's absolutely that's cool. I mean, that that's definitely fostered what you were at least put it in your head. Absolutely. I saw it around me, but I still was way far from making any connection oh, yeah. to, I mean, to I, me. I grew up, my, my mom threw pots like all, my entire life and you would have thought that I had 40 years of pottery experience by now, but I, mm-hmm. I've touched the wheel like three times in my life. Right. Yeah. I'm about the <laughs> same. Know? It's like, I don't want to be a potter. My mom's a potter. <laughs> in hind, hind, the whole hindsight thing again. Yeah. yeah. Should've, I'm really would've. grateful for that. I'm grateful. And I'll tell you, when I started woodworking, they were my first clients, my parents. Um, um, yeah. And here, really here. helped support me in my burgeoning woodworking career. My aunt and uncle and oh, that's awesome. My, from friends of my parents. They were, that, that first year was, they were, 
they were the only people buying stuff, you know, when I was just starting yeah. out. So they were great. Still are. <laughs> that's cool. You, you've got a big smile on your face talking about it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There, that's, that's cool. So I, I noticed, you know, that your mom still does some ceramic stuff. I don't know if, if she's around or, or not, but I saw some of her, ama- her amazing sculptural work. It's oh, pretty, pretty cool stuff. So yep. there's, so she's still doing that, huh? She's doing less these days. She, um, she did a, I can't remember what they call it, the residency program at Penland. You know, when they go oh, for a number yeah, of months, she did yeah. with Christina Cordova and mm-hmm. studied with her and really oh, loved it. Wow. And mom, if you ever listen to this, I think you should keep doing it. My, my personal opinion <laughs> is because, I, she, you know, she, maybe I don't want to speak for my mom, but I think she got frustrated because she wasn't selling as much as she want. And she was doing some things that not, it wasn't really accessible to lots of people. Yeah. Pretty, um, pretty dark, pretty dark and morbid stuff. Pretty dark stuff, and um, yeah, pretty amazing. I I think so too, and you know, I think it's. I really think sometimes that stuff just takes time for people to to get. It's yeah, not. Yeah. It's not for everybody. Um, she had an exhibition at Blue Spiral once, and it was wonderful. And I know she sold some things there, but she hasn't done stuff in a few years with that. And mom, if you're listening, get back to it. I know you have fun doing it. Do it. So good inspiration, you mom. <laughs> a lot of that's cool. A lot of some well, of was... those sculptures she's made right now. Mm-hmm. My parents live outside of uh, Mars Hill now, just outside of Asheville, and they're both doing great. Okay. And they have some property, and some of these sculptures are my. They put up around the property, so when you walk around the property, you're just walking through the woods, and you see this random, you know, disfigured orangutan head hanging on a tree <laughs> or something. <laughs> you're like, whoa, what's that? What? Oh, oh yeah, it's my mom's work. <laughs> it's pretty cool. weird. So you're coming out of high school, and I guess we were going. You know, you're steered in a different direction, mm-hmm. and and it you ended up getting into into geology and jumping into a geology degree. Mm-hmm. So that 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 threw you out west, huh? So after high school, I kind of just wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. You know, I yeah, right. I chose to go to school to. Um, Colorado College in Colorado Springs because it was Colorado. <laughs> and I I love the outdoors. I'd grown up going to a summer camp outside of Brevard, North Carolina, Eagles Nest Camp, and pretty much was my introduction into the wilderness and loving, you know, things as a kid, like backpacking and rock climbing and whitewater canoeing and kayaking. And um when I visited that school i knew immediately i wanted to be there you know right at the base of pike's peak and yeah it's beautiful i just wanted to learn i just wanted to get out of winston-salem and learn something and i had no idea who i was and what i wanted and geology was i chose that as a major because it got me outside the most um a quick thing about colorado college is that they were it was on the block plan not the semester plan you took one class at a time for three and a half weeks and then you were done and you had a block break from wednesday at noon until the class next class didn't start till the following Monday. So you'd have about a five and a half day break eight times a year to go backpacking, to get out into the woods. And for geology, wow. you'd, you'd get on a bus and you'd be, you know, over Colorado, New Mexico, Wyoming, Arizona, Nevada for two, two and a half weeks at a time. Some of these class geology classes were two blocks. So they were eight week classes and you were gone half of that time outside camping and studying geology. Um, it was a no brainer that that was going to be my major, even though I knew, 
even when I was, I didn't want to be a geologist. I didn't want to, I, I saw the career options as working for a petroleum company or going on in education and, you know, getting a, another degree and becoming, you know, a teacher or something. Yeah. So, um, I, I worked at, I did end up working a year at the school with what they called a paraprof, uh, assisted in labs and with the field trips. And that, that was a blast and ended up kind of starting a trend for my twenties where I started doing a lot of traveling and a lot of kayaking for about five or six years. Um, moved to West Virginia and started working as a video kayaker on the new uh, river okay. and the Gauley river and Kind of yeah, those were yeah. my offices, and I'd have a video camera in my kayak and take videos of rafting, <laughs> raft trips, and that was my office for a while. And I live, I live out of my car, yeah, and I'd go in the winters. I'd travel, I'd save up some money, and I'd spend it all winter and come back and do it again. And wow, that was a blast. Those were those were what I kind of considered the, the good old days, <laughs> just globe trotting the world and doing a lot of hiking and kayaking, and it was it was a blast. Um, I knew I'd, I'd be on the river though. I knew after a few years and I'd be looking at people who it's funny, my age now <laughs> as river guides right, and they were river guides in the summer and it could be ski bums in the winter. And I just thought, yeah. God, if I, that's going to be me easily, <laughs> easily <laughs> hard, hard living old yeah, timers. <laughs> I, I, I still had this urging to do something to have some kind of career other than just, just kayaking. That was fun for me, but it wasn't, I just didn't want to do it professionally forever. Right. So, um, I kind of spent a little time soul searching and just trying to figure out what I thought might be a good profession for me. And half wise and half kind of a blind grasp chose architecture. And as I mentioned, one of one of the things that inspired me to do that was just a memory of this drafting class I had in high school. Another big inspiration for that choice was traveling the seed. and seeing all the indigenous architecture. I was really inspired by both wilderness and the natural world, also just architecture. And I love seeing what people had built. And I remember being um, one winter in Nepal in India and seeing these old wooden structures. Remember in Kathmandu, that was, um, I think the way it was described, one of the oldest wooden structures still standing and just incredible tech, you know, really detailed lattice work and old post and beam. I just, I just thought it was incredibly beautiful. And so I also, I also think it was just figuring out that it was something about that idea of, making something, just making something, building something inspired me, you know, so it could have easily been some kind of craft, but for me, it was, it ended up, oh, yeah, let's go try architecture. And so I, I jumped into that. Well, you saw these much bigger pieces that really inspired you. I mean, that's, you know, that's mm-hmm. quite an undertaking to, you know, one to build those, but two to then, you know, twist around your, 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 the beginning of your career to kind of decide, you know, I want to go in a new direction. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a big change for me because, you know, I was, I was living, I was living in West Virginia and kayaking every day (laughs) for about five or six years. So then going back to school, um, for a master's program in architecture. And I, I felt completely out of my element. I felt like an idiot. And I remember the first couple of years in that program, just really not even understanding what I was doing there and just really doubting myself. There was a point about halfway through that I started really getting inspired about the coursework and the classes and kind of finding my own interest in architecture and kind of my own design vocabulary. 
in a way. And once I figured that out, it became a lot more fun. But it wasn't fun at the beginning. So what started what started defining your vocabulary? And this is at Virginia Tech, right? Yeah. You're going to yes. in Blacksburg, Virginia. That is correct. Yeah. I um well a couple things. So this is how I got into woodworking was I was um I didn't want to be one of those architects that had never lifted a hammer. And pretty much I had never lifted a hammer. So I got a job one summer with uh, some friends from Fayetteville, West Virginia, that had an outdoor store there called Blue Ridge Outdoors, and they were opening up one in Blacksburg. And I helped the owner build out the store. And we were doing traditional you know, stick framing, building some walls in the back and shelving. And there were some uh, – one day people came in to assemble these display units that were timber frame, traditional timber frame by a local timber frame company out of Christiansburg, Virginia, called Blue Ridge Timber Rights. And I remember seeing them put those up and knock in the pegs and, you know, the break, the corner braces and being like, you know, as I was hammering nails in the back, I mean, now that looks cool. Wow. <laughs> and the next summer I got a job working for them for Blue Ridge Trimmer Rights for a summer. And I really think that's when I, that's when my interest in woodworking really, they were, yeah, they were building home. They were both commercial work. They had done a huge winery up kind of near Blacksburg. I can't remember the name up on the parkway. And they had done a covered bridge in Winston-Salem. They, oh, some hu- huge stuff. Big okay. stuff. Big yeah, stuff. Yeah. And it was, it, I really fell in love with the whole aspect of the layout on these big beams and the, the joinery mm-hmm. and cutting them. And I still, there's lessons I learned in that shop that I still continue today. And it was really kind of the first introduction to woodworking that I had, even though it wasn't furniture, it was the same principles of the layout and the joinery and putting something together. You know, we'd assemble and all these yeah. big beams and bends in the shop, we disassemble everything and take them to a site and put them up. And when that thing got on a site you'd see the structure without the walls and the windows and the roof. And it was just pure structure. It was one of the most, those experiences of seeing those for the first time, some of those beautiful things I've ever seen you know, these just structures sitting, sitting there. So while I was one particular day, it was, a uh, they ran 10 hour shifts and a few times a day you took 10 minute breaks. So it's pretty tight shifts and you, everyone would oh. stop work and go sit down and have a little break. And I was flipping through a tool magazine and I saw little pictures in the book of uh, a chair by Sam Maloof and his book, you know, Maloof Woodwork. I think I was, yeah, Woodworker. And uh, another book by George Nakashima. And I went back to the school and checked out those books from the library. And that's really what kind of opened up the door. Oh, there's furniture and beautiful furniture. And look at the grain in that wood and how beautiful is that? And it blew my mind. So that's what got me into the shop. And the kind of the rest was history. I never imagined I would be doing this for a living one day, but it was really falling in love with the material. And that's still what keeps me engaged today it's it's every board you get is kind of like a new a new mystery in a way um it's still exciting in that way actually a a couple of things i wanted to pick up though on was and you know we can go there or not go there but you know when you were talking about your mom's work you were talking about you know how it was how it was dark and she wasn't selling and it didn't seem real accessible and I'm real interested in that whole notion of how important that really is to our creative practices in terms of does our work have to be accessible? Does it have to sell to be valid? Do we need any of the above to reinforce why we make? I don't think it matters at all. 
I think it's very subjective and very personal. And what I told my mom was, I think she shouldn't give a shit about whether people buy her stuff. If she's here, 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 exactly satisfying for her and she's enjoying it. That's all that matters. That's that's my first, that's my point of view. (laughs) I'm in the same process of telling my mom, she's doing these amazing sculptures of, of ceramic waves Mm -hmm. and like people in lifeboats, like trying to survive the, catastrophic reality that we're all in and they're these amazing metaphorical sculptures and she's she's doubting them and i'm like no these are amazing don't stop so it's same thing i mean it's like yeah just just make stuff who, make who stuff. gives a shit if somebody likes it yeah get it you out like, there. you like it enough to like to to make it tangible yeah. i guess it mattered to my mom enough yeah. to make her well you it's know, personal it's really do this personal. or that right exactly Exactly. But I, I, in, from an outsider looking in, I could see that it, I was, I can project my own feelings upon that pretty easily. And I wish she would have kept it up and not, not put so much thought into what other people think. Right. But I mean, I, I think that becomes a factor in our own practices too. Yeah. When we think, oh, yeah. when we think, well, will anybody like this? Will this sell? I mean, I can mm-hmm. tell you personally, Every object I ever made that I thought was going to have some mass appeal has been a loser from the get-go. <laughs> yeah. If that's is, the idea, <laughs> to, to the get-go, usually fail miserably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so so selling objects isn't necessarily a – having them be acceptable to a large group of people isn't necessarily really a valid starting point for so, agreed. for making objects. So let's dig a bit deeper. Agreed. Brian, have have you run into those problems too where it's like, you know, a confidence in what you're making? I mean, all you know, the time. Yeah. <laughs> I I I think design is one of the scariest things you could possibly do. Um, you know, you sit down with that blank sheet of paper and you if you don't have some kind of limits, furniture has its own limits because it's it's got a, some dimensions and, you know, you choose some species of woods to work with and, you know, it's a, it's a chair or it's a table or it's a bed or whatever you're doing. Those are some limits right there. But, yeah, yeah. you know, if you don't have some idea to help guide where you're headed with your, with your thoughts, um, it's terrifying. So yeah, some of the scariest moments I've had is just the, those beginning stages because that's pretty much how I, built this business is it wasn't hey here's what i have to offer you know do you want that one pink blue green it was like hey what do you want what do you need i'll build it and then i sketch some usually like three quick little sketches and i send them to people to home in an idea and then i get a deposit check and how the hell am i gonna build that yeah (laughs) and then try to try to figure it out games on and make some money yeah so we're we're go ahead rob Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of what I've done is just say in the beginning, especially say yes to everything and figure it out along the way. Yeah. Right. That's how I, that's how I've learned. I, uh, I didn't, I had, I do have some design background having gone to architectural school, but I had zero woodworking training and I was not shy in terms of calling people, cold calling people anywhere in the country and meeting people at trade shows and asking questions and reading books and watching videos and learning that way. But I mostly learned through the job of things that I made and just it all kind of goes back in the pot and stirred around and informs the next piece and the next design. But that's literally how this all evolved and grew. 
Well, so I am curious, though, about that that first step in the process, that blank mm-hmm. piece of paper, you know, where you have to get your toehold into an idea, whether it's driven by a client and a commission or whether it's just like driven by who knows what. So I'm just curious, yeah. walk us through how you created the Swallowtail Chair. How did I mean, that's your most iconic piece. What was the toehold that got you started in that? Where, where, how did you go from the blank sheet of paper to actually conceptualizing that idea? So um, that was that's a good mix, I want to say, of trying to give the client what they want, but also maybe kind of putting my own spin on something. That was maybe one of the first projects, other than some of the real early stuff, like the Heron Table, which was all me in there. Um, that wasn't just trying to give the people what they want, so to speak. I kind of, um, I had a little bit of free range on designing that chair. So although it, the first of those chairs was designed as a one-off and it was a prototype for a client in New Mexico that previously ordered a desk, um, and gave me the leeway and the freedom to do that. I'm very grateful. I mean, that's for a, that. that's an awesome thing to, to be able to have to move th- within. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember at the time being aware like, oh man, this is this kind of is the first thing I can kind of, he's, I got a lot of freedom here to do a chair I want to do. And I hadn't designed a chair up to that point. That's not true. I designed one chair, um, for my parents that has since been taken back and turned into firewood because I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the swallowtail chair, this is kind of the image to have with that. I, I hadn't, now I, I typically I do a lot of design work on the computer, 2D drafting. It's not 3D modeling, but it's easier to store the designs that way. But for the first half, um, you know, for the first ten years, I was I'd start out eight scale or quarter inch scale, and then I'd take things to the printer and blow them up full scale for templates and stuff. But I started that chair on graph paper that I had eight and a half by 11 inch sheets of graph paper. And I I, I scotch tape all these individual sheets and I had them covering my work table in the shop. And I had pictures of all of my favorite chairs hung up on the garage door to my shop and all around me. And at the time I, I, one of the limits I put on myself was I was doing a low arm, a, a low arm, chair you know like a classic i was looking at um hans wegner yeah and these danish designers steen jewel and this guy sigurd ressel had a one of these low back armchairs that i loved so i was just trying to kind of recreate that with my flavor not put a new spin or invent some new chair but kind of make it make it my own so to speak um taking principles that i really learned from those danish designers um uh it should not have it should look good from all angles it should be comfortable it should have a logic to the construction you know take away material when it's not necessary these kind of principles in fact hans wegner had a great book um that i was referencing and looking at where he outlined a lot of his principles for designing in wood that that was great i was fiend jewel is one of my favorite designers and i was looking at a lot of his chairs um, and again, that I think that chair by Sigurd Russell was a major inspiration. And also people like Sam Maloof, who in many ways I I honor as kind of teaching me woodworking because I bought his DVD from Taunton Press. I saw what tools he was using. And that's how I started. I bought one of his Nicholson Rasts that he recommended. And I saw his, you know, what grinders he was using and how he shaped on the bandsaw, which I don't shape on the bandsaw like he does. Um that's, but that's some scary work on the bandsaw like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Um, so that's kind of, that's how that chair started. I had pictures all around me. I had a type of chair and I just remember looking at these books and being like, okay, well, how wide does it need to be? How high does the seat? I had no idea. So it was, it was just eventually just making a decision. The seat's going to be 17 inches versus 16 and a half. It was no real rhyme or reason. It was just like, that seems to be the average maybe of these chairs I'm looking at. And I didn't build a prototype. I just made the chair and there were tons of mistakes. And even that chair has been redesigned <laughs> about five times. Some of them visibly noticeable, some of them in terms of joinery or small mm-hmm. things that you probably never notice. Um, I finished that chair. I got the first coat of oil on at a midnight one evening. And I left the next morning at about 6 a.m. driving to New York to it for a trade show. And I met my cousin up there who lives in the city and we drove around the city and he would double park and I would run into different showrooms and galleries with that chair and just like, Hey, you know, I'm up here for a show and I'm looking for some representation in the city. And I had every range of responses from people just laughing me out of their stores to one, one showroom took me on. That was my first representation. And that kind of would start the ball rolling for other people. You know, it was a little more credible to call another showroom and say, Hey, I have representation in New York and I'm now trying to find representation in this region. You you did it guerrilla style. That's great. Total guerrilla style. But that's that chair. So the name Swallowtail, was that Mm -hmm. ever, because it, it, the, the chair really is evocative of, of that of a bird-like image. Mm-hmm. Um, was that, did the name come after the design? Because I know you obviously, you, we, you know, we've talked a little about your love of nature. Is, is, yeah. Was that a piece of the initial idea or or did it feel more bird-like after it was created or, or in the process of creation? Total marketing. <laughs> <laughs> it was... It was literally, um, I, I was very lucky, I think, to have discovered the Furniture Society early on and meeting Andrew Glasgow, who at that time was the executive director. Um, they they had their offices in the same building as the Grovewood Gallery in Asheville, and I met Andrew. And they were, right when I was starting woodworking, they were involved with the, a trade show in New York City, the International Contemporary Furniture Fair, where if you were part of the Furniture Society, you could try to get to a juried exhibition and they would rent a booth and they had 10 people participating together. But it did open my eyes up to the world of the design trade architects and interior designers and marketing specifically to them. So I met somebody up there who helped me. And at that time, you you know, in order to try to get press, you had to put a press kit together and write a press release and make a CD with your images and kind of make it really easy for these these editors. So the whole name Swallowtail Chair came about of trying to put together a press release and figuring out a name. And the- I call this? (laughs) Yeah, literally the way the the back kind of swoops down a little bit there. And I do love Swallowtail Butterflies and how their wings kind of come down. I used to draw Swallowtail Butterflies all the time when I was a kid. I would make mazes. Inside the butterflies, I was also draw parrots all the time. I had a bird and I would make mazes <laughs> and parrots with different colored pencils. And so in in putting out a press kit, we named it the Swallowtail Chair. We, you know, invented some flowery language around it and voila, that's kind of how it got its name. Good. <laughs> had nothing to do at all from, you know, any kind of inspiration or anything I was looking towards. I think referencing people 
think my work references animals or bones or things in nature a lot. I, I, I think that's just because I'm really inspired by that connections and the flowy sculptural aspects of how things yeah. join and grow out of each other. Some of the shapes, some of the like the legs of your tables and chairs. Yeah. Evoke that like the Malabar table kind of has that like animal leg kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, it's almost a, a spin on the traditional, you know, you look at old ball claw feet, you know, it's kind of how yeah, something yeah. meets the ground. There's some, there's something there to kind of design wise show how that, that foot meets the ground. And I, I really love looking at some of Antonio Gaudi's furniture. Um, and he really did some funky stuff at, you know, at, at the feet. And I think that was kind of, that's actually a funny, a funny thing. So in that Malabar table, it's actually grinded in and then stipled for some texture. But yeah. the way that came was the first time I did that is I thought that was going to be all smooth and trying to do some kind of clever detail. And I got in there to sanding it and I was like, fuck this. <laughs> I'm not sanding that. <laughs> and I cut out my little stipple thing and I started stipling it and it would burn the wood and it started making, you know, some little black marks in there. I was like, that's pretty cool. And I was just kind of playing around and I took a picture of it, put it on the website and then people liked it. And yeah, I've, I've done it since, but that's how that happened. It was a total mistake. And it's because I didn't want to try to get in there and, you know, hand sand these little spots. Now, one, of, one, of laziness. one of Eric and I's teachers um wayne rab used to say a mistake was a design opportunity that's exactly mm -hmm. it it's like you know nine times out absolutely. of ten a, a mistake leads to something even better absolutely it's so much fun when you make those little unforeseen discoveries you know well and in this case i'm not so sure it was a mistake because i mean a lot of times we make judgment of well, I mean, where are you going to get the most bang for your buck? I mean, if you sat there and hand sanded that detail for three hours, was it going to have the same visual impact of just saying, fuck it, I think I can, I think I can, it's I can much get better more visual is, impact yeah. somewhere else. So, I mean, so part of this podcast is, you know, is uh, giving people an idea of, of people's workspaces and their sort of their daily practice. So can you take us through a, uh, a verbal uh, version of your shop. Can you can you give us a virtual walk through your studio and your and your daily practice? Sure. It's always fun to have people come visit me because I never really know what what they think, what they expect. But I've had different shops. I'll just tell you about the shop I'm in now. I'm I'm living in some property about twenty plus acres. I live right on a pond. It's kind of a perfect place to be you know, in self-isolation and quarantined right now. And I'm used to it. So not much is different for me. Um, so it's uh, my shop. It's completely uninsulated. <laughs> I do have a little wood stove in there to cut the edge in the wintertime for glue ups and doing some finishing work. Um, it's it's very humble. You know, it's a concrete, concrete floor. It's about 700 square feet. Um, I have chickens and they're always running around and pooping outside. So I just got to be careful about that. I have my workbench and I do all my grinding outside. So I have a little 10 by 10 canopy that I put up right outside the garage door. And when I want to do some grinding, I um, it works great for both the summer sun and yeah. the rainy days. <laughs> and I drag my workbench, which is the first thing I ever built when I started woodworking out under that thing. And I do all my grinding outside and drag my workbench back inside. Nice. Inside the shop, I have... Um, the, the first two tools I purchased when I decided I wanted to do this professionally, I 
purchased a bandsaw and a combination machine. I started in a very my basement of a house I just purchased in Asheville, first house, and I started there. It was for two years, and it was like three hundred. 325 square feet, like six and a half foot tall ceilings, but my head and this combination machine allowed me to do all my milling, you know, the bandsaw could cut the curves. And I remember I had, uh, when you run, when you're ripping a board on the table saw on this combination machine, it goes one way, but if you're joining and planing a board, you push it the other way. And so this, it was like a 2,500 pound machine and it had a little roller on it that I had, I could, I could literally roll it two feet back and forth and, and angle it, whether I was ripping or jointing or planing so I could align it with a doorway into a bathroom. So I could have room to either rip a board or join and plane a board. It was constantly going back and forth. And I would kind of, you know, working on a project that was on my work table in the center of this space, I would be walking around the, the perimeter. So now to be in about 700, maybe 750 square feet, I just, just it's a great space for, for one person. Wow, that's a warehouse compared to your old space. Right. Yeah, that space in Asheville in the, the shop, uh, in, on the short Cox Avenue was the biggest shop I've ever been in. And that was, yeah, that was like 1200 or 1400 or something. Yeah. Like yeah. That. And it kind of had its own wood room, storage room and a little office room. And plus the shop itself, it was, it was great. I wish I had that space again. That was, that was, that was a wonderful shop. It was a cool space and it was really convenient to everything too. Yeah. But so. you know, again, say lovey. Right. So what yeah. is, what's, what's your, what's your daily practice look like? I mean, do you get out into the shop first thing in the morning? Do you, looks like coffee is involved. Yes. Well, I mean, absolutely. Well, okay. So I, I my background's in architecture at the moment, but I'm currently working back in the field of architecture right now. Um, so I have two jobs at the moment and I'm literally trying to figure out how to navigate this new terrain. So um, I've always been interested and passionate about architecture, and it was never really uh, a goal to completely drop it out of the picture. And honestly, I've, I've worked part time in the field. It's it's before about half a year ago, going back into doing some architectural work. I had worked part time for some people for a number of years. It's probably been about eight years since I've done that. Um, and I'm not licensed, so I'm interested in getting licensed and learning about the field. And so I'm working with a guy um, named Chad Harding in Asheville, who does a lot of contemporary residential architecture, um, really highlighting materials, a lot of glass, a lot of wood and steel. And it's a wonderful, really talented architect. And I feel like a baby. I I feel like I'm starting woodworking all over again, yet in a completely different level. And it's, it's always kind of been my dream to be able to design some homes and build some furniture. So in some way, these two fields are going to merge. I don't know exactly how. I, I don't want to work 80 hours, which I'm finding myself right now struggling a little bit and working a lot on the weekends and while I'm, you know, have this other full-time job. Because in order to really learn what I want in the field of architecture, I need to commit. I need to be there. I can't just do it part-time, which I've tried to do in the past. And it's kind of not been a great, you know, just for earning a buck and a job, it's one thing. But for really learning something, it's not really good for the architect I'm working for or for myself. So yeah, you're just not far enough in. Yeah. So these days, my daily gig is during the week. That's that's my commitment. Um, and I'm doing whatever. I'm, I'm commuting. I'm typically working in Asheville 
the beginning of the week and I'm working from home remotely the end of the week. And in the evenings, some, some evenings I'm getting in the shop and on the weekends I'm getting in the shop. So it's, it's very different. I'm doing a lot more sitting, which I don't like. Um, and I need to kind of figure that one out, just how I kind of take care of my body. Yeah. Hey, we'll I, talk about that Tai Chi stuff in a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> need a lot more movement in my life these days. Um, but, um, my mind is really, really engaged in the work. I am learning a ton. Like I said, I feel like a baby and this is going to be years of, of work to kind of learn what I need to learn to, to be an architect. So it's, it's exciting. Um, and it's also a little, a little of a struggle trying to figure out how I kind of manage two careers because I, I'm very reluctant to throw in a towel with woodworking. It's not what I want to do yet. I'm also really coming to the realization that I, I can't do both full time at the moment. So how, what needs to give? And well, I mean, uh, obviously in these days of self quarantining, having a, a paying gig is, uh, mm-hmm. It might help you. <clears throat> sorry, might help make that picture a little clearer because I mean, yeah. most of us, most of us who are just woodworkers, don't have any work at all. Yeah, nothing on deck. You know, it's nothing yeah. on deck, nothing happening, and um, you know, it's certainly and not only that, struggling with the whole inspiration thing because I'm sure. finding it. I'm finding it very hard to go into my studio and feel connected. And yeah, just sort of. You know. I've struggled with all of that as well the last i mean really the entire career it's been peaks and valleys you know i've gotten some wonderful jobs and been high on the horse and making money and then i've had other times where it has just been the you know piece and stuff together or working other jobs just trying to scrape the bills together it's been a, a little bit of both and i, I will say famine yeah yeah so to have a stable paycheck for the past half year after you know being my own boss for the last 20 is certainly a change but it's it's nice <laughs> it's really nice because then the woodworking that comes in has been a little gravy so yeah building up a little cushion at the moment which is a good thing which i need i need to do well i mean i think the interesting thing for a lot of architects is is that the beauty of designing furniture is is that the scale is is so workable Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the notion of building a home is a is a month or a years long project. I mean, you can get into your studio and work out an idea relatively quickly. Absolutely. And I, think, I think that's the I think it's I mean, I don't I know lots of architects who make furniture as a as a sidelight just because it's it's just a really nice way of being able to make something. Yeah, that. No, I, I agree. I it, for myself, I'll just. I think what really inspires me is I'm trying to turn something in my head, make it real. And whether that's with um, a home, a structure, or a piece of furniture, it's it's satisfying. And I, there might be different levels to that. It's, it's hard to speak for architecture yet because I haven't designed a home yet, um, but I'm working towards that. I really look forward to that. Um, it's incredibly satisfying every time I'm in the shop and you know, people ask me, Hey, you know, don't, don't you hate to see those things go? I'm like, hell no, get it out of here. I'm ready, <laughs> ready, ready for the next thing. Move um, on. Yeah. Where's, where's, where's the next challenge? Um, so they're both thinking about both scales is a lot of fun. I think they're very similar in terms of design, how I approach would approach the design of a structure or a piece of furniture, but the, the scale of it's very, very different. And the, the tools of the trade are very different. Um, they're both really engaging to me. 
um, and I think is building. I mean, even as an architect, if you're not actually making something, I still you're still making something. I mean, I really feel like when you're at first when it's pencil to paper, it's the first act of making. It's out of your head and you're making it real at that point. And architects are really making things real, even if they're they're not the ones physically constructing the building. They certainly um, are making things real. And that's that's how I think about it. Well, they're, both, they're both exciting to me. Well, especially with your vocabulary that you've built of, you know, being hands on. I mean, and coming, you know, kind of going around and coming back after having all this making experience to be an architect that is also a make. I mean, I think I I can't wait to see the first Brian Fireman house. I can't either. Thank you, man. You know, you know I mean, <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to be pretty amazing, dude. <laughs> that'll 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 be awesome. I hope so. It's going to be, it's, it's fun. It's, it's, it's challenging. It's very humbling. I'll tell you, like I said, I feel like a, like a little baby. I feel like an idiot and I really do in this field right now. I mean, one of the things I've, you know, one of the, one of my, my day job is uh, I work for a design build company for a friend of mine who's a, who's a residential home contractor. And, and about 15 years ago, we were working on this big project and don't get pissed at me, Brian, but uh, we were working on a big design project. And because I've been working in CAD almost my entire career, he just said to me, he said, Eric, you know, we don't really need an architect to design this. You can just design this. Right. And uh, and that was the start of me doing a lot of architectural design and 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 drafting. And and I I love working on that large scale in a in a virtual sense. But the other thing is I think as a maker, I approach it a lot differently because I know how all the pieces go together. Mm -hmm. Having been around construction almost my entire adult life, I know how things go together. And it's a very different process when we have worked with architects over time who don't necessarily understand construction practices. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a, I think, I don't want (laughs) to... I think it's really important for architects to know how things go together and how they're built in the field. And it's a real disadvantage. Probably the biggest complaint don't. against architects is they don't have a clue about, you know, the, the real know-how of building or construction. And a lot of times they, there's so many ways to be an architect and there's lots of architects that work that way. They really give the broad strokes and they let the builder or the contractor figure out the details. And there's other architects that take the complete opposite. They want to design every little you know, nook and cranny and every little detail and not leave anything, you know, to anybody else's decisions. And then there's gray areas all, all between there, but it really, it really is a question of scale, you know, with those things too. And then I think something about furniture or woodworking, it really gets you in the shop and it's that notion of the hand, you know, in there and the making that that's the, that's a big difference. Um, there's similarities and differences, you know, you can't go out, at least, you know, at your desk, make a house, but you certainly <laughs> no. It's very satisfying to be in the shop and just, you know, chop away at a board. <laughs> you're not going to, you're not, I'm not going to feel that satisfied drawing lines on the computer screen ever, but there certainly is something about the fun and excitement about creating that and, and building it in a way, you know, imagining it into, into reality. That's still really exciting for me. Well, I think we're coming to a, a, a good point to wrap this up, Brian. Um, I don't know if there's any, any 
more things that we want to touch on, Eric or Brian, and you know, I I, I did actually want to ask Brian a little bit uh, um, about his teaching experience at Aramont and what, oh, yeah, and yeah. what is it? You just wrapped think, up a class, actually. I did. Yeah, you just wrapped up a class, and whether you know, along with architecture and woodworking, whether teaching is going to continue to be part of your practice. And yeah, just I wish I could answer that for you. <laughs> I don't know. I can say. Um, it's new to me. So two years ago, I taught a week long course at Aramont, um, and loved it. It was a lot of fun. I, I do really enjoy teaching. I got a lot of energy from it, from sharing what I know, as well as, as you know, and part of the reason I'm sure for y'all's inspiration for doing this podcast, just to connect with people. We all kind of live in our little holes as woodworkers. And it was, it, it was great to go out there and connect with other, like not just woodworkers, but at a craft school like Aramont, where just everybody is there kind of on adult summer camp and having a good time and experimenting with different techniques across all different craft medium. Um, you know, and eating good food. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, sure. It was a blast. So I did it. I did the same thing again this past October. I taught my second woodworking class there and had another time. And I, I just um, was there for a weekend, the East Tennessee Woodworkers Guild. So it wasn't an Aramont class, but they rented the school at, for in the wood shop. And oh, cool. I went up and there was a group doing turning that had their own kind of group and instruction. And I was teaching domino domino joinery to a group of people from the east tennessee guild and i used the festival domino to build pretty much all my furniture um i don't know how i'd make what i make without it (laughs) these days and it was a lot of fun it was it was just for the weekend but i I love it i love teaching and eric i do think it's going to become part of something i do um i don't i don't know if it's going to become the thing i do but it's it's something I really enjoy and certainly want to do more of and incorporate, you know, into, into my professional life in some way. It was, well, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. Well, I, I mean, I think for all of us, I don't think it's any one thing we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're finding right. out, I mean, you know, it's, it's any of 10 different things we do yeah. and figuring out, <laughs> right. And figuring out how to divide our time between all of them. I mean, uh, <laughs> who would have thought Rob? Who who would have thought Rob and I would become like uh, amateur podcasters? And you right, know, you know the hours we've spent sucking sucked into doing this and editing these things and all of this for for what you know, like anything, it's for the passion of communicating. Whether you're communicating with a piece of wood or you're communicating with architecture or you're communicating by teaching, I mean, it's all. I think it's all an urge to communicate, for yeah. lack of better words. Yeah, and we're we're getting a chance to, you know, tell our story and tell your story and thank you. Know, you. See where the very grateful for that. See where all of them interact. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. And we're all, we're all pretty connected as far as like, you know, we've all got a lot of the same, but different experiences, Yeah, you know, and so nice to share them. And I mean, you know, Eric, one of his big goals with this is to, to kind of like, you know, re- record this, this history Mm-hmm. of us as makers, you know, as crafters and whatever we want to call ourselves, you know, find out, I mean, essentially why we do what we do. Yeah. But, but to record it and to, to create this history. Right. And really to create an archive. I mean, I'd like, you know, Haywood community college or, or any of these other programs that we've, uh, we've participated in. It would be great if somebody would put it up on their server and, and, and this, this whole sort of 
you know, community that floats underneath the radar of makers can be, you know, can be out there and educating and creating community. So, and yeah, so it's my big goal because I sort of also love oral histories too. That's another one of my, my passions as well. It's it's comforting to know that, you know, as one is, as I'm working alone in my shop, that there's all these other people out there doing very, having very similar experiences to me and hearing these other stories kind of is, is connecting to that in a way that, you know, if you're unaware of that, just don't feel, don't feel that connection. So listening to some of the other podcasts y'all put out, it's, I have many times been like, oh yeah, I felt that. I'm, yeah, I go through the same thing or yeah, that's kind of, I, I did the same thing. It's, it's a, uh, you, you feel like they're, you're part of a bigger community by, by listening in and dropping into some of these conversations. It's great. Well, that, that, that's really encouraging too. It's cool to hear that. I, I feel really grateful to have discovered, um, a love of the material of wood and um, I feel very grateful to be part of this community and to be a woodworker, whether it's a hobbyist or professional. It's just it's just really fun to I feel so fortunate to have a shop. <laughs> I have some machines. I remember that's that was the first big battle. Um, you know, I was trying to rent and use other people's machines for quite some time before I made the move to get my own. And that was a such a huge step. And there's not a day I go into my shop and I don't realize what a, what a gift it is to have a shop, have a little, you know, cave to go in and yeah. explore I, and create I it. Totally it's understand that too, Brian. I try, I try and not take any second of this for granted. Yeah. Just realize how special it really is that yeah. we're, are able to do this, put the energy out towards it and make it happen. Absolutely. So yeah, thanks for including me in y'all's podcast. It's been a <laughs> well, fun. yeah, we're finishing up. This is Why Make interviewing Brian Fireman. Yep. So uh, in these uh, weird days of coronavirus, I hope everybody's uh, safe, home, and and happy as best you can be. But uh, anyways, why make? Yeah. Stay why healthy. Make? Stay happy. Absolutely. Why make? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. <laughs>